This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Today on the podcast, author Ajoma Luo, who has an awesome book that's called So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, also, I, I love I love talking to, to Ajoma. This is a great conversation. And hey, some news. Look, sometimes people come on the Patreon and then they have to leave. I get it. Everybody's financial situation changes. But if if I if there were 18 more dollars worth of pledges on our Patreon, then I would get to pay Sierra what I pay Sierra, and I'd also get to pay myself the same amount every month. $18. Patreon.com slash HeyQueeros. You can get this podcast back to where I want it to be, which is just like, I just want to be able to pay Sierra and myself a little extra so that we can justify doing this job. It's uh, it's amazing. I really appreciate your support. And hey, you want to see some uh, jokes? You want to chuckle around at some jokes? Well, um, I've got great news for you. Because I'm going to be in um, Lawrence, Kansas, April 16th. I'm going to be in Los Angeles on May 6th. And I am going to be here, where I am right now, back in Vancouver, May 28th. Those are all for shows. They're the only stand-up shows I know that I'm doing so far this summer. So please come to those, CameronEsposito.com, for tickets. Enjoy the episode. Wait, was I recording that? Oh my God, I don't... Wait. No, I did. Okay, Keep this part in too. <laughs> Jordan! I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on. Darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. We're just going to go. I, I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Ijoma Oluo, and I am a writer and speaker on issues of race and identity in America. Yeah, you. I mean, I would say also... Today in 2022, this is my perception of like a foremost, you know, I would, I would use the word foremost in there um, if that if that feels right to you. Oh, I have so many different places I want to start. Maybe just maybe I just want to start and, um, you know, anything can be something you don't want to discuss. But we just did an event together. You were so kind to be a part of uh, this awesome event that I did for the launch of my book. And I got a chance to hear maybe a little bit of what it's like for you, um, with your name and having a public presence. Um, because almost like each individual person asked how to pronounce Ajoma, which I understand why that's part of it. Right. I think people want to get it right. But, um, my name is something that people often get wrong. People often think my name is Carmen. When I was a child, it was pretty stressful for me because a name is so important and I didn't know how to correct people. Then I don't even, you know, but also people, it's, you know, Carmen and Cameron, I think are names people have heard before. Um, and I don't know if that's true in the context of some places in the United States. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about that experience of like being in in a, a public person with a name that people ask about. I mean, it's interesting because um, 
you know, both my brother and I have very Nigerian names. My brother's Ahamefale, um, my, my middle brother. And we grew up here in, in the Seattle area, um, to be more specific. But the interesting thing is, is these names are so recognizable. My brother's name is a bit rare, but it's rare in that, like, if someone was to give you an old English name, you'd be like, oh, that's the name of an old dead white guy, right? Like, my brother has that equivalent of a Nigerian name. Nathaniel like, something. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, yes. Exactly. Like, yeah, they're like, yeah. oh, your dad was fancy. You know, like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what his name communicates to people. Right. Um, but Ijoma is like the Sarah of Nigeria. I have like five Facebook friends yes. named Ijoma. Yes. Uh, but growing up here, you know, even though Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa, one of the most populous countries in the world, um, people aren't, aren't used to it. And I didn't even know how to say it right because my mom had raised me. My mom is white. And the rest of my family didn't like it. It was too hard. And they did what so many other white people do, which is they shortened it. Um, so I became Joma. And my brother became Joe. <laughs> so went from Ahamefile to oh, Joe. Oh, wow. Um, and so it was other Nigerians basically chastising me, you know, probably in like third grade when they realized I wasn't saying my, they couldn't understand what I was saying because that wasn't my name, you know, and um, and teaching me and, and really, you know, being upset. And I felt really embarrassed that I didn't know how to say it properly. And, you know, from then on, you know, it's, it, I've gone by Ijoma, but I think I got so used to hearing it said incorrectly that I really didn't correct people a lot until my business manager, Ebony, um, who, you know, is African as well. And she started correcting people and started stopping meetings. And she was so frustrated just being on calls and hearing people ask over and over again, how do I say this? How is this? How did I do it right? And it feels like the more people ask, the more likely they are to say it wrong. That um, <laughs> she started like coaching people before our calls because it was frustrating her. And I had no idea. And she was like, you, you really, you've done all of this work <laughs> and you actually have the right to expect people to say it properly. And, and people learn a lot more difficult names. And it's a very common name that people learn all the time. And so it's always funny because people will say, um, oh, you don't hear that name every day. And I'm like, well, technically I do. I, I literally hear it a thousand times a day. That's <laughs> but, right. Um, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like really, it's, it's so common that there's no question from anyone, basically anywhere in Africa as to where my family's from the moment they hear my name. It's, it's a really common name, but it's, it's an interesting relationship. I love my name. I love its meaning. It means a, a good journey or a safe journey. And I oh, was, wow. like pre I was a premature baby. So it was a, it was a name given to me, you know, at a time where they didn't know if I was going to live or oh my God. You know, how I would live. And so it means so much to me. And um, it's a beautiful name. And I'm very happy to have it. Yes. It, I mean, it is a beautiful name. And um, <laughs> certainly everything that you're saying, it is it feels like such an um, it feels like such a specifically American response. I, I just think, you know, we're the country that describes other people as driving on the wrong side of the road. So, you know, and, and then obviously adding the lens of race. I mean, this is not none of this is shocking to me, but it is that thing of like, you know, I, I just the other day, I feel like I was I was um in a like a business context where a white person was talking about uh, the smell of Korean food. And 
I have to put my head in my hands because it's it's I mean, to me, that that feels like a summary of the American consciousness that gets the most press, <laughs> that gets the yeah. most that gets taught in schools. So, you know, um, and it's wild because it is there's this exotification. There's this idea that to be American means you will find these things as strange or uh-huh. unpleasant. Um, people regularly try to troll my name. I'll get emails from, you know, often from white people wow. that start by insulting me, by deliberately exaggerating my name and misspelling oh, wow. uh-huh. it. And it's so funny because they think this is a deep burn because they don't like my name because it scares them, it confuses them. They never once considered whether or not I have any negative feelings about my name at all. And I don't. So it doesn't mean much. It's always confusing. Cause I'm like, I understand. Like if you're trying to go for an insecurity of mine, a name that I love and that my family picked for me out of love is not the way, but, but you assume that everyone must be like weird name. Oh, I bet she's, she hates having a weird name. I love my name. And, and it's, it's regularly used. Um, even though, you know, if you were to look through my life, there's no evidence that, you know, the only time I've ever been embarrassed around my name was when I felt like I hadn't respected it properly. You know, I've never been ashamed. I've never wanted a different name than what I have. I mean, I I feel like I so I I feel like I know the moment that you're talking about because I mean, I'm thinking about it like with regard to Kamala Harris when she was running and like the Fox News anchors, but also like see, you know, other politics, the the deliberate mispronunciation that was going on. I like know that moment, but I guess it never um, I've never heard somebody describe receiving that, you know, into their inbox. And um, congratulations to those folks on being able to write out that thing that I've only ever <laughs> I've only ever heard. Um, but yeah, it's so much work. They it's really so work much work. It. Yeah, that's true. That is actually true. People are putting a lot of work. I always think that when somebody finds like a video of mine talking about queerness and they could just ignore how like how did you did you find this by hashtag like how did this come into your purview you know like because it's not i'm i'm putting this in a in a lane where you might not necessarily even come across it you're doing so much work over there you're doing a lot of research i i i know <laughs> part of what helps me deal with like the hate mail from various things is remembering the weird convoluted process that brought that person to me. Cause I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. Somehow you had to come across (laughs) this thing and you were like, Oh my God, how dare this exist. And then you Googled me and you had to spell my name right. And then you went to my website and then you got an email address and then you typed a bunch of words. I'm like, I don't know you. And I won't like, I'll, I'll delete this email and then you won't exist anymore. And it's so wild to me because I think something would have to injure me or my family for me to put I for me to put that much work. I'm busy. And I'm like, oh my, what is your life that you're just obsessed over this? Sometimes to me that indicates the the effort that I put into living versus the effort that other person puts into living. Look, I'm not trying to make, I am trying to make wild assumptions. I find myself exhausted just existing in the world. Also, I like work really hard to achieve the things that I want. But to me, that actually speaks to like a it's they're part of the same thing, right? Because it's like it's like, oh, if you have enough privilege to be pissed off by this, you might also have enough privilege. <laughs> it's on a free time. <laughs> you know, like, it's like it's, 
It's either this or tennis. Like, yeah, which one is exactly. it going to be? And maybe both. Maybe <laughs> yeah. both. Yeah. <laughs> Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! I, I I cannot go through this interview without asking about this because it's uh it's something I've wanted to talk to you about for years, which is um so you're you're you are people are listening to this on a podcast, but you have like beautiful makeup on where you have um a shirt and earrings that are kind of coordinated, but then you have what I would call pistachio eyes. <laughs> um and uh I you know, I just know from following you on social media that that makeup is something that's important to you and you actually you do you do it so well and it's something that you share about and i wanted to ask you about the origin of that like like when did you start doing this and and what's that like for you oh yeah i was so young i mean i've always loved makeup i've always loved art so i would say it mostly stems from my love of visual arts and i was always painting always drawing and so, you know, from a really young age, and I will say, being a mom of, you know, two boys who are now almost, one is an adult, sort of, you know, they're not adults until they're like 30, I think, but one legally is an adult and the other one is a teen. Um, even, you know, little boys, every little kid, regardless of gender, looks at makeup and goes, wow, you can paint on your face. It's amazing. And that was my impulse when I was little. And my mom, um, would give me some of her old makeup, which is hilarious because she's white. So no, it, it was ghastly. Um, nothing worked for me. I was walking around looking casket ready for, you know, ages. But <laughs> I would put it on. I would sneak it to school. And uh, I would hide under an umbrella at recess and put it on in the middle oh of the my day. Oh, God. And then come back to class. And nobody said anything. <laughs> but, oh you know, I'm God. like 10 years old. <laughs> and I, I show up looking like an average 10-year-old. And I come back looking like a like an ashy clown, you know, from lunch. And no one ever commented on it. But I had a little bag of things that, like, my mom would get sick of and want to throw out. And I would keep it and hoard it. So it started there. And then I've always kind of loved it. I think for me, too, being a Black woman living in predominantly white spaces, I gave up on trying to like fit into a space a long time ago. And I figured I'm always going to stand out. I, and I do, I'm six feet tall. I'm fat and black in, in, in one of the whitest major cities in the country. And I might as well then do whatever I want and not actually let, you know, it, does this seem appropriate for the space dictate how I enter the world. And so that was always a hobby for me. And then as I got heavier into this work and the really draining nature of documenting violent white supremacy and patriarchy, 
it really became my exercise in self-care. It became this thing where I have to still my mind every day and focus on myself. And mm-hmm. it's that ritual when as a mom, as, as a you know writer and all these other things, I don't usually have time for myself, but almost every single day I do. And in fact, when I skip it, and I'm having a really busy day and I'm kind of cranky. My 14-year-old will like tell me sometimes, mom, go put on some makeup because <laughs> I'm so cranky <laughs> and he just wants me to be in a better mood. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just been lovely. And, and I used to, you know, I started sharing pictures just because I was proud of the things I was trying and how they turned out. And now it's kind of become this other thing where I think in a world that still tries to tell women and especially Black women what you can and can't be, Seeing someone who has this whole career built around this one area still unabashedly indulge in this passion without apology and very publicly um, is something that I think a lot of people get a lot of comfort and inspiration from. But that was all a side effect of me just being like, look at this cool thing I made. Isn't it cool? And, And that was pretty much it. I, I, so, I mean, I thank you for everything you said, because I, I, well, I feel like I've seen that, you know, what you're talking about. I certainly I certainly know that, you know, part of a journey of being taken seriously in white spaces and then in male spaces has been like a de-sexing. And I and of course, for some reason, we also couple makeup and sex- sexualization, you know, so I think I certainly see that thing that you're talking about. I, I also grew up around my little sister is like one of those people who love to play with makeup like she was doing. She was like if she was from now, she would be like she'd be like a YouTube or, or TikTok makeup person. And it was really cool watching her experiment with that as a kid. It's not something that like I felt attracted to doing it myself, but um, I love to wear makeup, which people find very surprising. Um, and I do think also speaks to like some expectations, not some, the expectations that we put on faces that are going to show up in certain spaces. Like, I don't know, I'm working on this show right now and I went in, you know, you go in early to consult with like hair and makeup and I told them exactly what I wanted. And then I had a castmate who was concerned about me ask me later, like, do you want to be wearing this much makeup on your face? Like, I, I don't know if they, is it like, are you comfortable with it? And I was like, oh, no, no, this is like what I asked for. Like, I, I actually, at this point, I'm like, fill in the brows and I, and like cut the cheekbones, but like bronzer and like not, you know, um, blush because I have a very pink undertone. I feel like I like people would be surprised. But <laughs> I cannot do it myself like you can, but I do know what to order off of a menu of someone else doing it for me. Um, and I think it's really beautiful to hear you talk about taking care of yourself and having, you know, a passion that, that you love. Um, you look great. So it's we're all benefiting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's been really fun watching you too over the years because, you know, I've been I've been a fan of your work for ages now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I first saw you live at All Jane in Portland. Oh, my God. So that wow, was... that is a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> very long time ago yeah. um, before I was doing any, this work, honestly, wow. when I was still working in marketing. Um and um, you, yeah, you you were there with Aparna. Yes, was there as well. That was such a, that was such a, that was such a really really cool show. Wow. Um, but anyway, so like I've been following your work, and therefore kind of you and how you present on stage, and it's been fun in the Instagram age actually to like to see you like oh like 
experiment with things that you like and watching your style evolve. And I do think like just how I, in you know, we, we constantly police how people look. And I think often even in, in queer circles, we really police like what is femme, what's not femme, yes. um, how you're supposed to feel about your body and, and how you're supposed to represent your sexuality and gender identity in a certain way physically that can be really limiting to absolutely everybody. And so that's been really fun to watch. Like you talk so openly about all about not knowing everything and the flex- and how things can fluctuate as far as how you want to look in the world and the things that you love that might surprise people. Um, it always, it's always funny to me, it surprises me because it's like, oh, okay, I think the things that surprise mostly straight people, because I don't think if you've ever been in any sort of queer relationships, that you'd be surprised that people have layers within queer relationships of things well, that they that's like. Right. But, you know, it's still also, I, it is also still within the community. I think we, we all expect people to, to have that package, like, oh, are you this? Are you this? Are you this? Um, you know, I've always read as high femme, whatever that you know, means, um, because that's always a thing that's ascribed to my aesthetic and not actually how I move through the world. Uh, and it's always, it's always interesting to watch that. So it's been fun to watch someone, um, you know, so well known within and without the queer community really openly look at that and, and, and exercise that sort of freedom. God, I mean, thanks to Joma. That means a lot to me. I, I I really appreciate it. I, I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I love what you just said because, Again, in relationship, like to circle this thing you just said, in relationship, I do feel that I've been seen in my life um, by friends and by lovers, partners. Um, sometimes, sometimes I will be friends with somebody and realize that I'm not seen by that person, which is also wild. Because sometimes that can happen like years in. Um, but community it's like taking a step out away from that to the community level the conversations that we're having at the community level i think are really fucked up to be honest i think they're so fucked up there's so much patrolling and i mean for a while i for a couple of years i really left social media like i didn't have it installed on my phone at all and i would go on and like sort of post if i was doing a show but i wouldn't say anything vulnerable or like really honest on there. I still don't really use Twitter the same way that I used to. And some of this is because for actually Instagram is easier for me right now. And I and I do also love TikTok because I can like sort of say a full thing. And um, I just felt very boxed in. It's like I feel boxed in in the straight cis world. And then in the queer world, it was like, I don't know. I I I I really don't understand the like. The way that supporting folks who might align with the ends of a spectrum, then su- then for some reason that support means we all have to like run to the edges. I think it's like, let's all be exactly where we are and how cool that we can be a lot of places. And I've been saying this lately in the podcast, but like where I'm really seeing this is straight cis dudes experimenting right now in Hollywood like what Harry Styles is doing is giving me so much more confidence and I like I want to I just feel like I want to like say to the queer community you're lifting this guy up like who's wearing you know dresses in vogue or whatever like that's who I am you know and and I love that and and I also think that we're doing it a little bit better for like 
non-binary folks who were assigned male at birth. Like I see, I see some like real praise around adopting femininity when masculinity is what was culturally ascribed. And I just, I love that fluidity and I love, I just love to see it for, for everybody. Like, I just love to see a greater understanding of fluidity for everybody. I would too. And I, I would say too, though, what's interesting about that is I would say a lot of the kind of acceptance around um, people who are side male at birth presenting as more feminine um, or people who side male at birth who are women, it's, it, there's also extreme limits to that too, because you uh-huh. also have to then physically fit this sort of type. Yes. And I have a lot of friends who are like, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm a woman, but it doesn't mean I'm going to like change my physical appearance in this particular way to go with it. And that's completely rejected. And it's funny because like, I have, you know, I see this in, in, um, in the, in the, in the fight for racial justice as well. And I got a tattoo actually to remind me about like that, that conflict. So I, I don't know if you can see it's backwards because you're camera, but it says basically revolutionary slash reactionary. Oh and God. they're opposite of each other because I personally need to look down and have the reminder that a lot of times we can define reaction as revolution. And the things that sometimes when we're fighting against a constraint, we say, I'm going to do the opposite of this. And we call that revolution instead of saying, what is my genuine, authentic response? What does freedom actually look like? And I, I think with these movements where we have generations of people fighting for basic freedoms, then you can define often your liberation as that as the removal of that one particular barrier or that one place you needed to be allowed to represent as and not the freedom from oppression dictating how you move through the world. And so you can become wed to that. And then when people start taking the movement in directions that maybe don't match those patterns, those things you fought for, it can seem like a violation of what you fought for. And I think we see some of that policing, especially in the queer community. And I would say, especially with queer women, we see a lot of policing of, I fought to not have to wear a dress. I fought to be able to look butch and masculine and now you're telling me that you that you you know you're going to just wear this dress you're going to be in this space you're going to do this Mm -hmm. thing and it feels like a threat when we have to remember that the victory wasn't this identity the victory was freedom for however your identity lives within you and how it can change over time and i think that that's something that we fall into it's something that happens in in the fight for racial justice as well where people will say you're asking for too much you're pushing you become unruly you know oh, oh we're including this in the movement now yes because the goal is freedom and i always try to tell people our definition of freedom is limited by the constraints that we grew up in. And so that means that we can push past it a little and say, I know freedom because I want to do this and I can't. So freedom means I can do this thing. But we can only see so far. Like our imagination can only carry us so far. And we do that work. We break down those barriers. And then people stand above where we were and can see further. And they say, oh, I want to go in this direction. And we're like, wait, no. I can't see that yet. So that can't be the goal. And we feel really threatened by it. And it's, it's, it's harmful and it's sad because it causes generational divides. It causes people to want to cast away older generations of activists on whose shoulders they stand. But it also means that those activists are pulling on and holding on to them and going, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't go because I'm not ready to go there yet. And I think we do need to open up better communication. We do need to start talking about what a cohesive vision that honors the past while also enables freedom 
in the future for people really looks like. Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, so you want to talk about race was released in, I'm going to, is it 2018? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Oh my God. I just did yeah. that <laughs> off the top of my head. That's, that's, that's when I, okay, awesome. Um, so you want to talk about race was, was released in 2018 and like, you know, I, and I mean, I remember seeing it be initially very impactful and, and have a big life and then it had a big second life in that in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter was movement was back in the streets in a more visible way. I feel like folks were, you know, every, I mean, that moment of like everybody's trying to publish their list. Everybody's tr trying to talk about resources. The the way that your book came back into, I mean, even just by title. It's it's like literally the the nation was sort of saying some folks let's talk about race and then <laughs> that is like an <laughs> that is like so you want to talk about race and and um I'm just very I'm very curious about well let's talk about the initial re release of the book what was that experience like when it when it was first released oh it was you know beautiful in very many ways right so I would say as a Black woman, <laughs> publishing a book is almost always going to be difficult because the industry is overwhelmingly white. I was the only non-white person to touch my book until it went into stores. Wow. And that process can be damaging just like, you know, it would be, and especially if you're writing about race. Um, I would say my experience was better than a lot of other Black writers have um, with my editor. But when it came time to publicity, we did initially have a lot of issues where, you know, it was probably months before I was sat in front of another black person to actually talk about my books. It was constantly, here's another white person to talk about this. Wow. And it was really marketed in the space. And I had to really push hard and it was really painful. And it was my first book. So I wasn't sure where I could, you know, bring things up or how. So that part was tough, but I will say the, the beauty of the book was that, you know, it didn't have this huge, great launch. It was heavily supported here in Seattle. There were pockets where it did well. It was very respectable but it never stopped selling. It was the type of book where people were constantly emailing me and going, my cousin told me I need this, or my boss read this and now my team's reading it. And, and it did that for, for years. And that meant so much to me. It meant so much to me to see that someone picked it up, found utility in it and said, you should read this too. And that was the response overwhelmingly. And when we look at the sales numbers, it was just this, you know, your initial bump when you first, and then a steady line for, for two years. Which is really unusual. I, yeah. I mean, I just to, I'm for anybody that's listening, this is like not a thing <laughs> yeah. for yeah. many, many books, you know, like, because I, that it's really the initial sales that, that most people or that most, that the whole industry is built on the initial sales, maybe a paperback launch down the line, but it's, this is not, this is yeah. very, very uncommon. Yeah. And when you publish a book, they'll tell you your best chance of getting on the New York Times bestseller list is that first week with the pre-sales. Mine didn't make it then. It was a couple months later that it actually made it. And it, it was just this constant regular thing. So that made me so happy. I would get emails from people saying, 
I, you know, I'm in an interracial marriage and my wife and I worked through this book on a road trip and we understand each other better, or my team is using this to try to, you know, create a healthier work environment. So I was very proud of it. I was very proud of how it was being used. I absolutely would have called the book a success um, pre-June of 2020. Right. Uh, and I didn't think, you know, I thought this was this was a great life for a first book. And then June 2020 happened. And what happened next for you? <laughs> that was wild. Um, I cannot say it was enjoyable. Honestly, it was a really traumatizing time because I'm first and foremost a Black woman, right? So I am in that moment, we're in the middle of this pandemic. I am heartbroken, grieving, scared, looking at, you know, these murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor once again, um, these very public killings, and just gutted, and my partner is as well, and then I get a call saying, you're number one in the New York Times bestseller list, and I was so angry. I was really, really angry, um, because these are all people who could have been doing this work. It's not like we didn't know there was a problem. It's not like we weren't saying there was a problem. It had to be, it had to make enough white people uncomfortable for them to do something. And it made me so upset that it hadn't made them uncomfortable before, that they were just starting. And, and to start with this book, because I was like, man, you know, if I had written How to Burn Shit Down, that would be the book I would want to sell out in June of 2020, because that's really where I was. I was like, why, why, why now? Why now are you trying to talk about this thing that's killing us? And, um, it was hard. I didn't want to, I didn't celebrate it. I didn't want to talk about it. Like my agent was really clear with my publishing team. Like, please don't send emails right now. This is absolutely not a celebratory time for her. Um, it was really difficult. And then I had to, I had to take some time to really be like, well, I mean, I'm doing this work because this is where we are. So I have to meet the moment where it is. We have to keep going from here. Um, but it was gross. It was, it was gross to get so much attention to have people, I don't think people realize that when they write to you and say they just realized with this murder, this is a problem, and thank you for writing this book, that they're admitting that they've lived in a world surrounded by people being impacted by this and they haven't been paying attention. Like, that's what they're saying. And I was getting dozens of emails a day from people saying, oh, I've been ignoring this, you know, oh, but thank you for helping me realize it's a problem. And it's not like we haven't been here screaming and yelling and people haven't been dying this whole time. And um, it was really, really traumatizing. Um, and I'm so glad I had my partner through that. You know, I'm, we were all, I think a lot of people don't get that a lot of Black people who do this work, you know, we were all collectively grieving. We we're all, and not just grieving, but frantic and worried. You know, I live in Seattle. Um, I'm worried for every protester that was down at the chop, you know, um, fighting, you know, and holding this kind of this liberated space, um, getting gassed by police officers. I'm what I'm worried about people getting COVID while they're out fighting for black lives. You know, all of these things, all these young people that I consider, you know, my community and every other black writer and speaker I know was in this space where they're traumatized and worried and then they're getting calls from countless white people. And so I don't think a lot of people realize like we spent most of our time checking in with each other. We spent most of our time being like, I get, I get text messages from writer friends saying like, Hey, this is a really funny romantic comedy. You should watch this tonight because I think you need some time off or did you eat today? You know, have you taken some time? And we were really just trying to hold each other afloat 
through this time that felt really heavily exploitative um, and trying, but also knowing it wasn't a time we could back down from because we had to see what could be done because we're actually fighting for people, you know? And, um, and then of course the backlash that came with it, the, the way that people resented the attention and the time on our, you know, that came to us, not realizing that we resented a lot of it as well, um, you know, was, was really difficult. And, um, it wasn't an easy time. It's, it was not in the, in the slightest. I'm glad my work could be of benefit to some people. I wish they had realized that in 2018 and that maybe we could have been a little further along when people were desperate for real action, that they weren't trying to figure out how to talk, you know? Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm thinking about um, a couple of years ago, I had this friend say to me, just in talking about like who we go to for support, um, that it's like a wheel. And when something affects you, one, for support, the best place to go is further out in the wheel toward folks who are less affected. But a lot of times a mistake that is made is going closer toward the hub of the wheel and toward the folks that are like more affected because that is the person that I think we assume sees the same thing that we see or sees it even better. So this was just something that that somebody told me. I mean, I was it was it was like early days of um, COVID and my partner Katie was sick with COVID. And I was <laughs> I mean, this is I was I was trying to talk to Katie about how hard it was that she was sick with COVID. I was like, this is really scary. You'd so I'm so scared you're sick. And then I like, thank God called a friend, you know, and one of my friends was like, well, that's, you can't, Katie's not the person. Like, Katie's, Katie's, Katie has COVID. Like, it's like, that's the person who's more affected. Um, and I just, this, this certainly, I'd heard things like that before, but just this wheel, that, that visual really stood out to me. And I'm thinking about it um, as you're describing and I, you know, how I perceived living through that time, it just felt like I think white people were really moving toward the center of the wheel to to lean on black folks to to validate that we saw what they were saying, you know, like we and I think that um, I mean, it sounds enormously harmful as you describe it. It sounds that sounds exactly right to me. I think that's that sounds exactly like what was happening. I think the utter panic of that time um, for white folks, it just it was like a, it was like a scramble. It was a, it was a scramble to it's also like a pain response when when we're in pain and we just want the pain to stop and so we'll do anything i mean it's like a an addiction response or something you know it it just felt it felt pretty unhealthy um and i i don't know where we are today like how does this feel to you today as maybe you're receiving like less frenetic and frantic energy but that still happened yeah, I, I think, you know, mostly what's interesting, I think, right now is 
If you're interested in the work, you try to get as much as you could accomplished. You know, you really tried to push through knowing this momentum wasn't going to last. There were so many interviewers, so many white people going, what's different about this time? What's changed? And I was like, you can't look at this time and say anything's different. We'll know five years from now, depending on what systems get changed. What's different about this time? We don't know. It could just be a lot of people got upset for three months and nothing happened. Or it could be we pushed through some really important change that saved lives. Um, and that only time will tell. The difference isn't how outraged you are because, you know, as, as my brother says, that doesn't raise my credit score, right? Like you being sad and you crying doesn't actually save Black lives. You voting differently, you spending money differently, you demanding change saves Black lives. And so I think where we're at now is there were some areas where people... You know, I, I think a lot of times what people don't get is that even when Black Lives Matter and when these protests aren't front and center, we are constantly fighting for Black Lives, constantly making change. There are, there are Black moms in their school board meetings demanding differences for how school boards run, right? There are abolitionists out there working to post bail and get people out of jail and you're working to get resources for people, right? We have all these things are always happening. So when the opportunity arises, there was a lot of groundwork already in place to push forward some really important changes. And those are wonderful things. But for a lot of other people where they don't have that power, where that network isn't built, especially I would say in hyper-capitalist areas of business, where a lot of Black people spend so much of their day, they were promised a lot of change that never happened. And they were, and they had, they were subjected to a lot of white tears and they got no benefit whatsoever. All they had, all they got was trying to deal with their pain while also having the pain of white people who are just upset at witnessing pain, right? Um, being, being shoved onto them in the hopes that, you know, us as magical Negroes will have that word of wisdom, that solution, because people often think that we are specially adapted to pain and suffering and we're not. We are just as traumatized as anyone else who would have to go through this day in and day out. Um, and so they went through all of that. They went through the listening sessions at their work. They heard all their local pro- politicians say Black Lives Matter. They saw all the signs show up in their rapidly gentrifying streets. And then nothing happened. And I think that that's kind of where we're at right now. And the only kind of benefit I, I see to it, the only, because we always have to find, like, what benefit is there to be had? We have to find that moment. Otherwise, we kind of go crazy, right? Um is that at least we have this collective moment within Black society where we see what happens when the, prom- when the promises are just words, right? We see it, we saw clearly, and, and hopefully never again will those words suffice. Hopefully the next time we're told, oh, we're going to do something, we're going to say when and how and sign your name on this line and what's going to happen if you don't. Um, And not to say that there weren't Black people trying that, but I do think that it was something that we needed collectively to see how much lip service could really be given to this with no action. And then I'd say also to see, this is a point I've been making anytime I do any sort of speaking in any entity, to see how on a dime every corporation, every school system, every government system could change overnight to accommodate white people in COVID. 
And yet every basic accommodation that we've asked for to make people of color safe in workspaces, to get them services in schools, to get them services from local governments, and every accommodation that disabled people have been asking for forever to be able to participate fully in public life has been denied time and time again. And hopefully, if there's any silver lining, we will be able to hold up this evidence to the bullshit that says we're asking for too much, that what we're saying is impossible, that it all takes time. Because we watched this whole world get turned upside down where white people needed to get something. And it may have been imperfect, but you know, I, I've talked to school districts who said they can't change disciplinary policies. It's too hard. And yet they can find a way to educate 100% of their students online and build whole policies and training around that. You know, it, that's, the only, that's the only hope is that I think collectively we need to remind each other, and I'm constantly reminding people, like, we've seen what people are capable of, and we saw how much the, they will let us down if we don't actually have them show up with that change in hand and really push it all the way through. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you mind my asking how you are doing? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's been... We, you know, my family personally has had a really rough couple of years and also a really wonderful couple of years. You know, my partner and I have an absolutely beautiful, beautiful partnership, which helps. And, and I'd say, you know, being partnered with a Black man during this has been wonderful and beautiful, you know, uh, because I, I absolutely needed that specific support. I've, I've been a single mom most of my life. This is, um, you know, and most of my relationships I never brought into my home. This is the, this is the first time in a long time that, you know, I've been fully partnered and having that support from someone who understands is really helpful. But, you know, we've been in this pandemic. I've been doing this work every case. You know, I've been I, I get personal emails from black people every time that they're being harmed, violently harmed. Um, and I'm trying to help people through that. I have two kids. I'm struggling to navigate through a pandemic. Our house burned down. Um, you know, my son got covid. Like all, everything that could kind of happen, happened, but I'm still here. And we also built some really beautiful things. You know, we had an artist relief fund that got over a million dollars out to Seattle artists, um, focused primarily on um, Seattle artists of color and queer and trans and disabled artists. And that was a beautiful thing at a time when people weren't sure how they were going to, you know, make a living. And we, you know, we held strong. And now I think it's like, I do what a lot of other Black women do. We are always expected to kind of keep everything together for all of the ways in which white supremacy tears our community apart, right? When our sons, our husbands, our partners are locked away, we are the ones supposed to keep the lights on. We're the ones supposed to raise the kids. You know, we're the ones supposed to show up at schools to fight teachers that don't want to educate our children. We're the ones that are, you know, we're supposed to really carry a lot of this burden. And so what we do in times of crisis is we say, let me get through this. Let me get through this. Let me get through this. And so I think, you know, where I'm at right now is that phase where things seem to be settling for a moment. And I'm like, oh man, now I got to find a therapist, you know, and I have to find a black therapist, a black queer therapist. Like it's, I live in Seattle. Like it's, <laughs> it's ridiculously hard. It's ridiculously hard to find a black queer therapist. That I don't have a personal history with in this city. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's really difficult. Like I was going through this list like, oh no, 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 no. Oh no, no, I can't. Oh you know, my God. Of it's course. really difficult. <laughs> so it's just, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. But you know, I'm getting married this summer. 
we're healing. It's always a, I've, I've said before, it's hard to heal from something that keeps happening. You know, and you can't say I'm healed from white supremacy or, or patriarchy. Um, but prioritizing and keeping space for, you know, how you need that is is vital. Yes, absolutely. And um, look, I just appreciate every, all the honesty that you brought today. I think it's I think it's awesome. And um, I can't even imagine what your makeup is going to look like at your wedding. I, I am excited about that. I am. I, I'm excited about that whole part. Like, um of a black designer working on a dress. It's going to be very colorful. You know, I'm, I'm 41. I've, I've had my, I had my, my, my starter marriage ages ago. And so now it's just about having fun. Like I refuse to be stressed out about this whole mm. thing and I really want to have a good time. So we're, we have, you know, it's a, it's a Nigerian and Ethiopian wedding. It's very colorful. My, my youngest brother immediately texted me saying, I need to know the colors because I'm having an outfit made. You know, like it's, it's just, you know, we're, we're going all out. So I am very excited about that part. That part's going to be fun. Do you want to share the colors? You don't have to. Oh, keep yeah. Them private. Uh, so it's, no, there's a lot of colors. Um, I think we have five. So I think we've got it's like a, we love, so I'm a very colorful person. You can see behind me, mm-hmm. this is some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my partner loves color, but more earth tones. So we're kind of meeting in the middle. So we have like um, a like a golden yellow, like kind of a goldenrod color, purple, um, a blue that's like a sky blue, kind of like the tiles in there. Um, like, I think a brown. And then... I tossed something else in there that's pretty bright. I can't remember what, but those are, you know, the colors we're working with. It's a summer wedding. Um, and I, I, I want as little, you know, um, boring colors as possible in, in this space. I want it to be just a fun celebration. Um, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to see the photographs. <laughs> also, just, I mean, I'm like laughing at what you said about therapists because, I mean, even I live in, okay, I live in Los Angeles. I have a queer therapist, or I, I have a queer therapist, and um, that that we have a huge, for, compared to other places, we huge queer community in Los Angeles, and also, I am a white person, and my therapist is a white person. So you'd think this is probably the like biggest net that one could cast in having a queer therapist, and I can't remember when it was. It was like a couple years into working together that I, that I realized she like knew a lot of my friends <laughs> like I just didn't know for a while and then it was like I started piecing it together by like different things I was saying and then I was like oh no and um literally just last week I ran out I ran into her in the world for the first time which is fine there's you know no problem but I was wearing a mask at the time and she was wearing a mask at the time and I just said like Hello, and then her name in like a very like eyebrow raised <laughs> way, and she was like, she she didn't even recognize me, and I was like, it's Cameron. Anyway, my point is, um, I guess masks are something we should keep for <laughs> the purpose of having queer therapists because <laughs> it doesn't the fucking community, man. It's like it's so small. It's really it's, twelve people, you know. It it's is. like, and then if you and then if you're trying for any other cross-section or layer, it's fucking, it's from 12 down to three. It's, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so small and it's so like, 
almost incestuous where you're like, there's certain boundaries that normally people would be appalled with. You're like, oh, you have to let that go. Like, you're going to have to like. That's exactly. That's exactly. (laughs) That's what I I, I remember. I had like a, I was telling jokes about this at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was saying like, don't text your ex. And it's like, well, that's half the people I know. You know, who gave me great advice about that was Roxanne Gay, because I was talking with Roxanne and I was talking about how hard it is to date as a black woman in space like this. And she was like, oh, you have to go deep into the people you already know. (laughs) And sure enough, I mean, my partner is someone I've known for ages and and actually like, you know, was a close with my brother for a long time but like yeah it's like and I was appalled at first and then I realized like oh yeah no that's true I can't I can't <laughs> pretend like there's some hidden pocket of black queer Seattle that I haven't been in <laughs> it's pretty much all here oh my god uh well before I send you back into your day I always end the podcast by asking folks if they would like to shout out a queero so would you like to shout out a queero which is a person place or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today Oh, yeah, I would say like my 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 first queero in my life was Lorraine Hainsbury. And reading, I was a freshman in high school. I mean, like, okay, you know, like I read I read Color Purple when I was like 11 and was very much more heavily invested in that book than most 11 year olds are. But I hadn't made a lot of connections. Um but when I was a freshman in high school and I started reading Lorraine Hansberry's work deeply and actually could like recite her plays from memory, it was a connection to a Black queer woman who loved words, you know, who moved through the world in a particular way that I had never felt before, that I had never seen an example of. And I just felt like, oh, I could express myself. I could be in the world. I could have my story out there and I could be like this. And maybe one day, you know, be as half as mm-hmm. loved. Um, and it's still, you know, something that would be beautiful and lovely. But it just meant so much to me. You know, I, I, we didn't see a lot of Black women depicted as queer. And so to know that someone who had who had passed, you know, before, way, far before I had read this and was writing so beautifully about their life in these beautiful plays. And you could see these allusions to life in, in a way that I felt like I was struggling with life. And then to, to read her story and, and, and to make that connection and realize why I had connected to her um, as I like, you know, obsessed and dove into all I could find out about Lorraine Hansberry as a freshman in high school um, was really beautiful and just made me feel like, there was probably a bigger world out there than what could be had in the suburb of Washington that I lived in and that there would be people out there that could understand me. And that was, that was wonderful. Well, Ajoma, it's been so good to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. And um, I don't know, I'm just happy to, I'm happy to see your face and I'm happy to, to know how you're doing. Thanks. It's been lovely to talk with you again. And yeah. it's wonderful to see you move through the world and all of the really cool things you're doing. And congratulations on your wedding and all oh, of that. Thank you. Yeah. So thank wonderful. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you oh. seem very happy and that's wonderful to see. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's extremely sweet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it.